Good evening. Welcome to Secrets Unsealed and welcome to our symposium. I'm Don McIntosh and uh, last night we started a journey looking at Timothy. We were asking the question, is it relevant for our time? And last night we looked at the problem um, that had developed there in the first chapter. And I found that quite illuminating when I was discovering and researching that. It indicated that Timothy was very, very relevant for our time. And uh, I also am delighted that, uh, that we as a church are engaged in a global study of a topic. E even though it might seem like it's uh, negative, I always, think, I always think it's positive uh, when people are studying the Bible. Um, the fifth volume of the testimony says this, every controversy, every reproach, every slander will be God's means of provoking inquiry and awakening minds that otherwise would slumber. So, uh, you know, I, I see a lot more people engaged in uh, Bible study, and for that I'm very thankful. Let's just bow our heads before we begin. Father in heaven, tonight as we study your word again, we do ask that your spirit would attend the same spirit that inspired the word. As all scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, you've provided that revelation, and now we need illumination from your spirit that we could be involved in having a transformative spirit in our own lives and hopefully in the lives of others as well. In Christ's name we pray, amen. A number of years ago, um, this was quite a number of years ago, it was when I was courting my wife, um, I used to go to her house and she had a little brother who's now not that little, and But her younger brother, he was probably 10 or 11 years old at that time. And anything I would say, he would follow me around the house and he would listen for a while. And if he agreed with what I said, he would say, that's a fact. And if he disagreed with what I'd say, he'd say, that is an opinion. <laughs> Needless to say, uh, this was quite humorous at times. I would say something to my, uh, my ex-fiance, now my wife, right? And I would say something to her like, you know, you look beautiful today. Opinion. <laughs> I would say something else. Fact. And he followed me all over the place. Fact or opinion. And you know, we've heard a lot of opinions over the last few uh, years, those of us who have been attending TOSC. And uh, one of the opinions I want to start with tonight, one of the things that was heard was some were suggesting that not allowing women to be ordained to the gospel ministry is what they called a sin against Scripture and the Holy Spirit. They intimated in their paper that this is not allowing Christ to return. Now here's an example of their reasoning, specifically quoting from one of their documents. In these last days when the fullness of the everlasting gospel is to be preached, be preached God has called His church to return to an original blueprint for every area of our lives, our diet, our day of worship, and the three human relationships mentioned in Galatians 3.28, grounded in Genesis 1 and 2. Our church has already taken courageous stands against slavery and racial prejudice. God also calls us to return to the Edenic ideal for male-female relationships that allows women equal access to the gifts of the Spirit, Joel 2, Ephesians 4. Notice the particular timing the author suggests in relation to the call for women's ordination in his paper. Exactly 40 years ago, a clarion call, 
cry denying creation male headship and affirming the ordaining of women in pastoral ministry was sounded to the spiritual Israel at Camp Mohaven Conference. Now, 40 years later, it's time for spiritual Israel to stop wandering in the wilderness and enter Canaan as the Spirit gifts women for ministry, distributing to each one individually as he wills. May the church follow the Spirit's leading. So the suggestion being made by the author is quite clear. We're being led to believe that the truth concerning the need to ordain women to ministry came to Camp Mohaven in the 1970s. And if we don't respond to the clarion call, we are, according to the author, in essence, wandering in the wilderness, not entering Canaan. We're not following the Spirit's leading. We're, in essence, sinning against the Holy Spirit. That sounds pretty serious. How many think that sounds pretty serious? No ordination of women. No outpouring of the Spirit. No outpouring of the Spirit. No second coming. Well, before you get too concerned about this line of thought, let's consider what a non-ordained, by her own choice, lady, who most definitely had the gift of prophecy, what she had to say about what was causing the delay of Christ. By the way, she never said anything like we just heard, but what did she actually say? First, Ellen White believed Christ could have come long before the 1970s. Uh, so that's the first problem with our author's suggestion. Something written way back in 1883, had Adventists, after the great disappointment in 1844, held fast their faith and followed on unitedly in the opening providence of God, receiving the message of the third angel and in the power of the Holy Spirit, proclaiming it to the world. The work would have been completed and Christ could have come ere this to receive his people to his reward. It is not the will of God that the coming of Christ should be thus delayed. So Christ could have come more than 100 years before the supposed clarion call of the 1970s. Hmm, that's interesting. Secondly, Ellen White clearly stated what was causing the delay of Christ's return, and it was not the issue of ordination of women. Here's what she said, again, 1883. For 40 years did unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan, and the same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into heavenly Canaan. In neither case were the promises of God at fault. It is the unbelief, the worldliness, the unconsecration, and strife among the Lord's professed people that have kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many years. Third, the issue of women's ordination is not new within the last 40 years phenomena. In fact, during Ellen White's time, many denominations, uh, to date I've counted over 20, I think it's 27 I'm up to, many denominations during her lifetime began ordaining women. Here's a partial list. The First Congregational Church, 1853. The Wesleyan Methodist Church, 1863. The Salvation Army, 1865. The Disciples of Christ, 1888. The National Baptist Convention, 1895. Well, so much for new light. If people have been ordaining uh, women in their churches since her time, and there were over 20 of them ordained, I don't know. This doesn't sound like a very factual problem the author is dealing with. It actually sounds like an opinion. It might even be an untruth. Fourth, consideration of this subject at the general conference level is also not a new thing. Even though our author might lead us to believe otherwise, 
The Adventist Church specifically addressed the issue of the ordination of women during a general conference session in 1881. And not only was the issue discussed, it was called then a resolution, which is a polite way of saying uh, it was passed on to the executive committee. It was a resolution, which according to David Trim, uh, who presented at the TOSC, was specifically rejected. Now, do you think that a prophet of God who was widely aware of what was happening in over 20 denominations or churches in her day, do you think she would be aware of those things, of those ordinations? Do you think that a prophet who took a decided stand on the slavery issue would not have taken one on women's ordination, one who took a decided stand on even like eating meat, <laughs> a decided stand on temperance issues, would not have picked up on something so seminal as this hot issue? at least the way the author describes it? Do you believe that if, as our author suggests, the issue of ordaining women to ministry is linked with wandering in the wilderness and to a denial of the truths of Scripture and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that Ellen White would have not spoken out vigorously on this issue? Finally, the call for women's ordination is hindering, in my estimation, not hastening the second coming. From what we've seen in history, Standing in support of this divisive issue, the divisive issue of women's ordination, is actually moving us toward more worldliness and, and the same worldliness that many other churches have experienced who have made this uh, decision. And the continued agitation by this author and others has actually caused strife among God's people. And for some odd reason, some hold that Calling for disunity, which is actually what's being done, is positive. For some reason, they seem to think that calling for disunity would hasten the coming of Christ. Well, that leads me to today's memory verse. Remember yesterday we started with a memory verse from 1 Timothy chapter 1. You remember the memory verse? Do you remember the memory verse my, I taught my daughter? Do you remember that one? Do not... Rebel against the Lord. Now, this one is also taken from the pastoral epistles, which we're going to look at all the pastoral epistles tonight. This is why I need to be talking much more rapidly. Today's memory verse is taken from Titus chapter 3 and verse 10. This is what it says. Reject a divisive man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Now, why is it that this text is in the pastoral epistles? Well, that word, divisive, it, it literally means one that wants to separate things. Reject a divisive man after the first or second warning. Why should these types of people be rejected? And also, perhaps, the things they stand for. Titus chapter 3 and verse 11, the next verse. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. You know, I, I must tell you something. I, I'm, I'm trying to be as gracious as I can. But I think that the issue of women's ordination is one of the largest distractions I've ever seen in my lifetime. It keeps coming up again and again and again and again. There were thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of dollars that have been spent on this, and the same individuals keep bringing it up again and again and again. It's a divisive issue. But why was it that 
this text was mentioned in Titus. Why is such a, a, a divisiveness unprofitable and useless? Very simply, it's because it hinders evangelism. That's why. The reason we reject things that are divisive and bring disharmony and confusion is because they're divisive. Now, I thought what we should do tonight is open our Bibles, and I thought we should look at every single chapter in the pastoral epistles just briefly. How many think that's ambitious? And what I want to do is go backwards in the pastoral epistles, okay? Because what I want to do is go from Titus. The pastoral epistles are First and Second Timothy and Titus. I want to go backwards so that we end right back at chapter 2 and 3, saving the perhaps the most challenging for the last. But I want you to get the idea of what it means, what the pastoral epistles were written for. Some people try and say these epistles were written just for local phenomena in Ephesus. My friends, these books were written to found churches within the Gentile cult culture around the Gentile world. And you're going to see that when we look at these uh, verses together. Go back to chapter 3 and verse 14, Titus 3, verse 14. Let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be, what does it say next? Unfruitful. So in other words, we're supposed to be fruitful in the Lord. That sounds evangelistic to me. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Reject a divisive man after the first or second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped. In other words, don't tolerate divisiveness. It's going to get in the way of mission. Verse 4 through 8, going back. But when the kindness of the, and love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Lord, that having been justified by His grace, we become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a faithful saying. And these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Did you notice the evangelistic thrust? It's sharing the gospel. It's reaching others. It's a life transformed. Keep going backwards with me to verse 1. Remind them to be subject to the rulers and authority and to be ready to obey for, uh, for every good work. In other words, if you want to reach the authorities, be poised to do good works in your city and in your center. I'll talk more about it at the end of our message. How many can see that in chapter 3, it's all about evangelism? Let's go to chapter 2. Chapter 2, I'll just look at one verse, verse 11 through 15. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Doesn't sound like a local phenomena, does it? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify himself a people, his own special people, zealous for good work, works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke, and let no one despise you. Again, what is that passage all about? It's about evangelism, reaching people with the message of God's grace that not only, uh, you know, justifies but sanctifies them is the picture that's given. Go back now, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 17 and 18. Um, let's see what it says. 
But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me that all the, who does it say next? The Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. So again, evangelistic focus. Go back now to verse 5. But be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of a, what does it say next? An evangelist, fulfill your ministry. The pastoral epistles are all about what? Evangelism. Evangelism. That's correct. Look at verse 1. I charge you therefore before God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing as his kingdom, preach the word. So in other words, we preach, so we hasten, hopefully, the Lord's coming Verse 1, go back now to chapter 3. We're going backwards (laughs) to try and go forwards. Verse 17, that the man of God might be complete, complete, equipped for every what kind of work? Good work. Well, why would you want to do good works? Because you're reaching other people, not for your salvation, but to reach other people. Isn't that right? Look at verse 15. From childhood you've known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ. Again, the whole idea is an evangelism focus with the word bringing conviction and conversion. Chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. A servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Again, what's the focus? Saving people from destruction. Keep going backwards. Verse 10. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, chapter 3, verse 10, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, and perseverance. So this idea is, you know, continuing to share what God has done. Um, Go back to chapter 1 now. Um, Chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, or rather, should be chapter 2, okay. Chapter 2, verse 10. I guess I read the wrong verse 10. Uh, 2, Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 10. Sorry, I read chapter 3, verse 10. Therefore, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may, what? Obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. All right, let's go to chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 and 9. How many of you are getting the picture? It's all about events. The point is, what really struck me is every single chapter has something about evangelism in it. Verse 8 and 9, look at it. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his purpose and grace, which were given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. And then verse 1, Paul, an apostle, in other words, one sent, of Jesus Christ by the will of God, according to the, the promise of life, which is in Christ Jesus. He's saying, look, I'm, gonna, I'm sent to share the good news of life in Jesus. So look, Titus and 2 Timothy, every single chapter has something to do with evangelism. And the way the pastorals ended were, beware of anyone that brings divisiveness 
not to allow evangelism to go forward. Okay? Let's go back now and continue our journey backwards to the future. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, um, first, command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good that they may be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold of what? Eternal life. In other words, there needs to be money given to ministries like Secrets Unsealed, amen? Don't just keep that money. If you're watching tonight, send it in. And uh, if you're wondering another ministry, go ahead and contact me. But no, Secrets Unsealed. This is the idea. It's undergirding the ministry. A lot of people have a lot of funds that they're not doing anything with, and God needs to get the word out of his gospel. That's the picture that's given, Amen. You know, I have that saying, do your giving while you're living so you're knowing where it's going, right? And right now is the time to get uh, the saints into circulation. You remember Oliver Cromwell? He took over and he decided that he wanted to get rid of all the abbeys and all the different statues. And he said, we need to get the saints into circulation. And we certainly do need to get the saints into circulation. Amen? So... A very practical tip. Go back to chapter 5 and verse 25. Notice what it says there. Likewise, the good works of some are clearly evident, and those that are otherwise cannot be hidden. Of course, that text is alluding also to the investigative judgment. God wants to have a day of atonement people who are living a holy life on earth because he's cleansing heaven and he's also cleansing earth. And those people will be not only transformed, but transformative agents for the kingdom of God. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5. We're going backwards. Being well reported of for good works. And this is talking about the wife of one man. If she has brought up children, if she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. A very powerful text as well on the outreach that can happen when dealing with home and family and children. Verse 8, or I think that's all I have from that one. Verse 8, uh, yes, there it is. But if anyone does not provide for his own, so doesn't leave the men out, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Again, there's a witness if you take care of your family. There's a witness if you do that as a as a woman, there's a witness if you do that as a man. And if you do that, it reaches a lot of people. Amen? Amen. <laughs> All right. Now, look at chapter 4. We're almost done on our journey backwards. How many think this has been a good journey backwards? I want you to get really the point that all of the pastoral epistles are about church planting and evangelism and about reaching the world. Now, not just for a local situation. Have I made the point? I didn't need to. It was right there. <laughs> I just read it to you. Verse 16, chapter 4, verse 16, 1 Timothy 4, 16. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for doing this you will save both yourself and what? Those who hear you. Again, evangelism. Verse 10 of the same chapter. For this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially those who believe 
these things command and teach. Again, look at, not only is uh, Timothy for Ephesus, it has a message for how many men? All men. Not only is Titus for, just written to the area that Titus was ministering, but the salvation of God has appeared to how many men? All men. The idea that this is just for a local phenomena is, I'm so glad these texts are here. How many of you are glad that they're for us? Not just for people back in Ephesus. All right, verse 8. Here's another one. Godly exercise profits or bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having promise of life that now is and which is to come. There's even a hint here to health evangelism. I don't know if you're going to say an amen, but I work in health evangelism. Amen. You know, there's a lot of people. In fact, I talked to some of you. The way you came in touch with the church was through the health message. And just someone was telling me the other day that sitting here tonight, that they were on the plane and they were witnessing to someone about the message of health. Um, so health evangelism. And, and, and it's, it's, it's especially in, in this, this chapter here. Look at verse 3, for instance. Forbidding... To marry and commanded to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. Interesting. The foods that God created. Looking back at the creation story and utilizing that in health evangelism. Of course, there's an exception here. Uh, that's mentioned as well. But all of these chapters, when I looked at it, I said, certainly there's got to be one chapter. Since uh, our, those that are, are, are claiming that this book, you know, is just for Ephesus or largely for Ephesus, there's got to be one chapter that doesn't have anything except for about Ephesus. But every single chapter has evangelistic texts that are meant for the entire world, Okay. All right, so that's point number one. Why do we reject the divisive man after the first or second warning? Because when they talk in a certain way that brings division, the message of evangelism or the mission of evangelism is frustrated. That's the whole point. Let's go on. Why were Hymenaeus and Alexander in our last study delivered to Satan? Do you remember that? That was our last provocative memory verse of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they might learn not to what? Blaspheme. And uh, what exactly were they doing? Just to remind you. Because, again, I want to bring into focus that the divisive people I'm talking about here are Alexander and Hymenaeus. They were causing great division and frustrating the mission, Right? What were they doing? They were striving about words in Scripture. They were subverting the hearers, causing a catastrophe, chapter 2, verse 14. They were not rightly dividing the word of truth, 1 Timothy, or chapter 1, uh, verse, uh, cha chapter 2, verse 15. This led to an increase in ungodliness, uh, first, 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 16. It was like a cancer, verse 17. And they erred concerning the truth, verse 18. They, like we learned last night, were blaspheming, and we discovered what was the definition for blasphemy. It wasn't just uh, against God and trying to make yourself God as a man. It was all the systems of order. 
servants and masters, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 1 through 5. Husbands and wives, Titus chapter 2, verse 3 through 5. Every one of these texts, if you weren't with us last night, you look them up, and it says that if you desecrate that role relationship, it's blasphemy. So look them up if you haven't, weren't with us or, or watched the message before. Parents and children, um, if children are unthankful and, to their parents and not taking care of them, it's a form of blasphemy. And then members and elders. That was the definition of blasphemy. They were creating doctrines that tended to ungodliness. They were departing from the faith of the gospel, we learned. They manifest lustful ambition. They wanted to be in a different position. They had sinful habits and practices, specifically what was the specific sinful practice they had? Licentiousness. And their teaching had endangered the purity of the believers. All these things we learned last night. Um, <clears throat> when reproved, they attributed the wonderful revelations made by Paul to Satan. And when they rejected the words of Paul, they were actually rejecting who? Christ himself. Do you remember which of the commandments they were especially struggling with from our study last night? The seventh commandment. Remember how he went through all the commandments and showed how they all were there in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10? The seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. The very words, whoremongers, pornos, or fornicators and adulterers, or those that defile themselves, arsenokoites, which means Men or males, arson, coites, or coites, in bed. And as we learned last night in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 22 and 20, verse 13, that's a direct allusion to what was described there, both in the Old and New Testament, that being the sin of homosexuality. So they were struggling. They were licentious. It had to either be adultery or homosexuality. But it's interesting to me that Paul actually spends a word that he's never used before, that's never been used before, to describe what's going on. Uh, so this was the situation. This is what Timothy was dealing with in his time. You see, he had Alexander and Hermeneus, and he had to stand up to them because they were promoting licentiousness. So <clears throat> the message of 1 Timothy is not specifically dealing with women's ordination, but it is specifically dealing with this issue of homosexuality, at least the first chapter. How many can see what I mean? And that is an issue of, of role distinctions. And I'm so happy that at least I discovered that. I had no idea until I really deeply looked at the scriptures. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. What needed to be done in this situation in Ephesus, and what needs to be done now. I besought thee, Paul says to Timothy, to abide still at Ephesus. See, he wanted to leave. <laughs> he wanted to get out of Judge. He said, no, 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 stay there. When I went into Macedonia, that thou mightest charge some that they teach no other doctrine. And the same thing was said to Titus by Paul. Chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order. Now, I want you to remember that phrase because now we're going we're gonna to look at that now. Set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city that I've commanded you. See, the work that Timothy was supposed to do and the work that Titus was supposed to do and actually the work that elders do is to set things in order. Set in order because things were so disordered. Okay? 
So that's what needed to be done. That word order is interesting, set in order. Epi, D-O, D-O-thro, or through. Epi means over, and then the other word is orthos. In other words, to stand over and make, things, make sure things are going straight. That's what it means. <laughs> Setting things in order for mission. And here's what I want to show you, and then I'm going to show you in the Scriptures. What needs to happen or what needed to happen back in Timothy because things were so out of order was that things needed to be set back in order but on the basis of God's law. On the basis of God's law, on the basis of his order. Now, if you get that idea, it will unlock chapter 2 and 3 for you completely. And I want you to get this other idea. When you understand that the purpose of setting things in order is for evangelism, then you really get the idea of chapter 2 and 3. Okay, now I want to show it to you because it's very exciting. I just don't know uh, how I'm going to get through these things, all these things, but it is so exciting to see this. The idea then is what? To set things in order on the basis of God's law for evangelism. Look, as an Adventist, you should say, hallelujah. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments and have the faith of Jesus. That's our whole, what would you call it? <laughs> Vegetarian mantra, if you will. Okay, that's what we say again and again. And in there, you have evangelism. Here they are. And they're being looked at. Why? Because they have ordered their lives based on the faith of Jesus, which is a gift of the Spirit, which leads to obedience, which is a fruit of faith, which is also a gift, in the context of patient endurance, which is also a gift of the Spirit. These people have a latter rain-like experience. Are you with me? So, now let's look at this. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 1 through 15 and chapter 3, verse 1 through 16, and we're going to start going down and seeing this unfold. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1 to 3. Therefore, I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Point number one, pray for those in authority. Why? So that there can be peace and quiet. Hesias is the word. I don't know if I'm saying that. I have some Greek scholars here tonight. Uh, it's going to have to, it doesn't really matter. The Greek word means peace and quiet. I'm only pointing it out because later in the passage we'll see the word again. Okay? Plutarch had this to say in A.D. 45 to 120, which was contemporary of this, this time period. This epistle was around 64, 65, 62, give or take two or three years. Plutarch used the same word, and he talked about how society should be filled with harmony and hushies, or quiet, harmony and peace, used it the same way. It, therefore, was a word that stressed not just silence. That was not the issue. It wasn't stressing silence, complete silence. How could you pray for kings if you were silent? You couldn't do it. It doesn't stress complete silence, but a positive and proactive effort to seek peace and harmony. So number one, what are we supposed to do to set things in order? Number one, pray for kings. Pray for those in authority. And that's going to, why do you do that? Because kings are the only ones many times that can set things in order. That's the idea. 
So you pray for them. <laughs> Even if you don't believe in their political party. Let's say you're a Democrat and there's a Republican who's a president. You pray for that president. Let's say that you're the opposite way. That's the point. <clears throat> Next, chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, or 4 and 5. Who desires all to be saved, 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. Who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself for all to be testified in due time. Now, this is a powerful passage. Why is, it that we, why is it that we pray? Because we want the kings to set things in order. But then notice this. We focus then on the king of kings. Because of what? Because he has died for us and ransomed us. Why is that so important? Well, later on in chapter 2, you're going to find out in verse 14, it says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, having fallen into transgression. But she's not the only one that fell into transgression, right? She fell, and then Romans chapter 5, verse 14 says what? That Adam himself was a transgressor, right? This was the whole point. And none of them would have any hope unless... Christ had given himself as a ransom. Paul himself understood this. He said, I'm the chief of sinners, Romans chapter 1, verse 15, and he was saved. I love this quote the, from the pen of inspiration. As soon as there was a sin, there was a Savior. Christ knew that he would have to suffer, yet he became man's substitute. As soon as Adam sinned, the Son of God presented himself as surety for the human race. Can you say hallelujah to that? So here he is, the Savior, but then notice something else. Verse 5 and 6, one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Why do we pray for kings and those in authority? Because they can set things in order. Why do we pray to uh, focus our prayers in Jesus' name? Because he paid the debt to take care of our problems. He's the only thing that can set our life back in order. That's the point that the text is making. But he's also our mediator. Now that word mediation, <laughs> that's a beautiful word. It comes from the root word for midst or mezos. The actual word here is mesitas, which means one who intervenes be between two others, either in order to make or to restore peace and friendship. He's the mediator. Can you say hallelujah to that? Amen. We pray to kings and those in authority because they can create order for us. We pray to Christ because he ransomed us and he can bring our lives back in order. But not only do we do that, we pray to him because he's the mediator and he can bring people and factions together. How many of you think that this verse right here we need to focus on in this current conflict? Because we can't do anything, only he can. Now, on the cross, justice and mercy kissed each other. That's what he did for us. He brought justice and mercy together through his death. He mediated between the two. And he became a ransom for you and me. In other words, this wonderful doctrine of salvation is focused on the person of Christ and his cross. 
Now, when I looked these words up, mediation, a few months ago and studied them all as many as I could, I have this whole mediation document. I mean, I have like so many things I would love to read you right now, but I'm only going to read a couple. Here, here, here's how the pen of inspiration describes this. Jesus became a man that he might mediate between man and God. Hallelujah. In other words, bring us into right order. Amen. He clothed his divinity with humanity. He associated with the human race that with his long human arm, he might encircle humanity. <laughs> and with his divine arm, grasp the throne of divinity. Get that picture. And this, that he might restore to man the original mind which he lost in Eden. Can you say hallelujah to that? His mediation is to bring back cerebration. His mediation is to bring back the ability to even think right. Hallelujah. So bring back that original mind which he had lost in Eden through Satan's alluring temptation. What was that temptation, by the way? To eat the forbidden fruit. It was a breakdown of the roles. Is that right? And she, he followed the woman who desired to rule over him. His, her desire was for him. In Genesis chapter 4 and verse 7, it uses that word in describing how Cain wanted to rule over Abel. That man might realize that it was for his present... Get this point. Read this. Underline it if you've got a pen. I would almost underline it on my computer screen here. That man might realize that it was for his present and eternal good to obey the requirements of God. The mediation of God makes our mind change and we say, I want to obey. You're bringing things into order. I want to live according to order. Powerful. Disobedience is not in accordance with the nature which God gave to man in Eden. So mediation, we pray to him, we pray to kings and those in authority because they can create order. We pray to Christ because he brings order in our lives. We pray to Christ because he's the mediator. And mediation brings things together. Here's another one. This blew my mind, but it shouldn't have because uh, we know that, uh, you know, from the foundation of the world there was salvation. But look at mediation. Listen to this quote. Christ is mediating in behalf of man and the order of unseen worlds also is preserved by his mediatorial work. What? It's not just our world that's preserved by his mediation. It is the unseen worlds that are preserved by his mediation. I don't even know if I can grasp that. Are not these themes of sufficient magnitude and importance to engage our thoughts and call forth our gratitude and adoration to God? In other words, it looks like Christ was the eternal mediator. That's a powerful concept, isn't it? So, number one, pray to kings and those in authority. Why? Because they can bring order. Number two, pray to Christ because he died for you and for me, gave his life as a ransom to bring our own lives back into order. Number three, pray to him because he's the mediator and it will quicken our minds, it will quicken our hearts and it will bring us close to God, God close to us, one arm around us, one arm around God Amen. and it will restore what we lost in the original temptation. Now that's the picture that's given, corporate prayer, everybody praying. How many of you want to be involved in corporate prayer? Right? 
That's really what we need. In the midst of a crisis like we're facing, what we need is not argumentation. <laughs> we need prostration. We need to be praying to God because he's the mediator. He can reach people I can't reach. In fact, what I've even said now may have been inflammatory to people. May have just, you know, stuck them in the eye. The only way it's going to make any difference is if Christ comes in and through the Holy Spirit makes that make sense and applies at home. Isn't that right? So then after that, notice what happens next. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. It moves from a general call for prayer, then focused on the man of prayer. Christ is praying for us. We're praying to him, right? And then focuses on what? Gender-specific, verse 8, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. Men are called to publicly pray. Does that mean that women can never publicly pray? No. But there's a special sense that men are called to pray in public, and it can be powerful. And it's not just a, you know, I, when it says I desire, that word is, Bulomai. It's a deliberative. It's like the deliberate will of God. I want you to pray. It's almost like a command. I, not, I just don't just want you not to. No, you need to pray publicly. Okay? Men here tonight, you need to, to pray publicly. You know one of the big things in the church? We don't have any men showing up for anything. And, and you need to not only be there, you need to know how to pray. But notice what it says. It's a public humbling of themselves. How many think it's good to humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and in the sight of those that you love and lead. Let me think that's a positive thing to do. You see, when you humble yourself before God and your kids see you do that or others see you do that, they go, wait a minute. I've never seen Dad do that before. He's under someone else's authority. He's not just giving orders. He's taking orders. I'm under God's orders. So it's a public humbling and it's an inward, it's without wrath or doubting. You see, here's the point. Pray with integrity. Don't pray in a way that would bring the wrath of God down on you or the wrath of your family. And don't pray with doubts. So many men struggle with these very things. You know, when they get up to pray and their wife goes, oh, great, there he goes again, praying. Well, I know what he's like at home. So they don't want to get up and pray because they know like, what they're like at home. I'm so glad I'm a preacher. I know every week I have to be right with my wife and right with God. <laughs> you know? I'm just telling you the truth. It's a great blessing to me. I don't want my prayers hindered. I want to be able to get up and say, well, I might have made a mistake, but everything's right with my wife. I'm not going to get up and preach without that. Right? And that's why many people, never men, never take the leadership. And the, one of the biggest needs today one of the hugest needs today is, yes, women to be involved in ministry, but men to be involved in ministry. This is a huge need. Why is it that, why is it that the women are having to come in and say, what do we do? No one's here. I mean, I've been to churches where there's no man there, except for me, you know, that's it. So lift up holy hands. Without wrath or doubting, there's a holiness. They used to wash their hands before they prayed because they prayed by the riverside and, and when this was written. Why? Why is it that they're to pray? Because this is the foundation of authenticity. Their life is ordered by God. 
Everyone knows it if they're praying without wrath or doubting. And why do they need that kind of order and authenticity? Because later in chapter 2, verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. They're going to be teaching, exercising, teaching authenteo, authority. And they need to be authentic to be able to, to, to teach uh, authentically with authority. Are you with me? No one wants to listen to anyone who's doubting. No one wants to listen to anyone who, you know, is under the wrath of God. That's the point. Prayer is essential. It's the way to authenticity. Now, I have a picture there. Synagogues were places of prayer and the reading of Scripture. You see that man's hands are lifted up, lifting up holy hands. That's what they did. The synagogue was called by Josephus the prayer house. And so that's where they went, and men were expected to pray. A devout Jewish man of Jesus' day kept the personal, following personal schedule. At sunrise, he would pre repeat the Shema. At 3 p.m., the hour of the afternoon temple sacrifice, he would pray perhaps the Tefillah, um, which is the Shema and other scriptures I mentioned there. And at sunset, he would repeat the Shema again and again, pray through those very specific prayers. Public prayer defined men in that day. But they had a problem. Jesus criticized the hypocrites who stood and prayed at the street corners. You see, some people prayed just to be seen. They liked just the position. They liked the power. God needs no men like that. He needs no men like that. Everything they do was to be seen of men. And they had wide phylacteries. And they had long tassels. And some Pharisees, you see there in the picture, apparently arranged their schedules so they would just happen to be in the middle of the market when the temple trumpeters were praying and they could be admired by the crowds. And for many Pharisees, however, these long fringes and phylacteries had become badges of status and opportunities of ostentation. So in other words, when you pray like that, who is upset at you? God is. Wrath of God is not, he's, he's holding it back, but he's not happy with you. Are you with me? So when we read verse 8, we have to understand something. It's directed at man. God always is starting here with the men first. He said, everybody pray, but now let me get down to the brass text. Men, show up. Show up to services. Be authentic. And don't be some kind of showboat that just likes power and abusing power. Don't do that. And expect to get anywhere. You know, I, I've got to say, as I was at this uh, ordination study committee and I listened to some of the folks from around the world, uh, there's been a lot of men who've messed up. Number one, they haven't shown up. Number two, they've done things that are abusive. And that's why we're dealing with some of the problems that we're dealing with. And I think we just have to freely and frankly and fully admit that and not tolerate it. Are you with me on this? Amen. That's the picture. Now, prayer that's done by a leader in public can be powerful. Let me give you one example. When I lived in Kansas, one of my colleagues on the Ministerial Association was a pastor, Joe Wright. And let me read you his prayer that he went before the legislature, the state senate, rather, and prayed one day. Heavenly Father, we come before you today to ask your forgiveness, to seek your direction and guidance. We know your word says, woe to those who call evil good, but that is exactly what we have done. We have lost our spiritual equilibrium and reversed our values 
We have ridiculed, we confess that we have ridiculed the absolute truth of your word and called it pluralism. We have worshipped other gods and called it multiculturalism. We have endorsed perversion and called it alternative lifestyle. We have exploited the poor and called it the lottery. We have rewarded laziness and called it welfare. We have killed our unborn and called it choice. We have shot abortionists and called it justifiable. You see what he's doing here? What is he doing? He's saying all of these things need to be righted. Everything needs to be put in order. He's praying an ordering prayer. Do you see that? When we pray, we're, as men, we're to pray ordering prayers. And this is what he was doing. We want our culture to be ordered after God's way. That's what he's praying. Then he continues on. We have neglected to discipline our children and called it building self-esteem. We've abused power and called it politics. We've coveted our neighbor's possessions and, and called it ambition. We have polluted the air with profanity and pornography and called it freedom of expression. We have ridiculed the time and honored values of our forefathers and called it enlightenment. Search us, O God, and know our hearts today and cleanse us from every sin and set us free. Wow. And that prayer went around the world, around the world. That was on the air for years after that. How many think we need to be men of prayer? Men of prayer. Now, how does Ellen White apply that text? 1 Timothy 2.8. The faith we are required to have is not do-nothing faith. Saving faith is that which works by love and purifies the soul. In other words... If you're having that prayer with holy hands, it's not just praying. You don't just show up as an elder on the end at the weekend and not do anything else in the church. He who will lift up holy hands to God without wrath and doubting will walk intelligently, notice this, in the way of what? God's commandments. Remember we were saying that everything needs to be ordered. Why is it that we pray for kings and those in authority? Because they can order society. Why is it that we pray to Christ? Because he can reorder our lives. Why is it that we pray to the mediator? Because he can bring things together. And why is it that men should pray publicly? Because it can bring order back into society and they can live in accordance with God's commands. So men pray publicly. Um, and all these different things. I think I repeated a, a page there. Now, what about the women? Now, finally, we get to the women. Um, the Bible is much harder all the way from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, all the way till now. It's been all about men. Men, 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 men. And it's been rebuking men. It's been talking about men. It's been taking men to task. Amen? I can see the ladies here saying, go on with it. But often we just jump right here to the women as if the men hadn't been dealt with. God is dealing rather straightforwardly with men. I think that's good. And now finally he gets to the ladies. And what does he say? In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broided hair or gold or pearls or costly array, but that which becometh a woman professing godliness with good works. Now, let's go through this text. If men have a problem with public prayer and being authentic, women have a problem with dress. I'm going to prove it to you. In general. Women in wardrobe. You're supposed to be dressing in a way that brings order as well. Women, verse 9, adorn themselves outwardly in a way that acknowledges authority. In other words, they were dressing in a way that wasn't doing that. And I'm about to show you what it means exactly because I was so interested in this text. I'm like, 
what in the world is this text, why is it here? You know, I think this text is actually related to the head covering in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It actually is talking about the same type of thing, and I'll show you why I mean that. Outward ornamentation and apparel that manifests honor, manifests self-control. And Peter, he talks about having self-control. Women, verse 10, adorn themselves inwardly. Don't deck yourself out. Deck yourself in, in a way that acknowledges authority. Inward godliness. In other words, this isn't done for men. This is done for God. Verse 9, verse 8 is between the man and God, but it impacts others. Submission to God by men. Verse uh, verse 8, submission to God by men. Verse 9 and 10 is submission to God by women, right? Inward godliness, this is done for God. The result then from this, in verse uh, 2, it says that you might lead a quiet and peaceable life. And here, as a result of dressing the right way, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 4, it also uses the same word, that they might lead a peaceable life. In other words, you dress a certain way, you're going to have a disordered life. If you dress another way, you'll have a peaceable life. If you don't understand this, um, get with one of the ladies afterward. Now, this does not mean that men get a pass when you do something wrong. They should be self-controlled. But ladies, talk to the other ladies and explain this to each other. But there, I'll just say as a man, sometimes ladies wear things that cause... It, to be very hard for men to have a well-ordered thought process. He that understands, say amen. amen. Now let me look at the historical context of this a little closer, verse 8 and 9. How did women dress in the first and second century of Roman culture? To do this, I, I, I researched a bunch of stuff, and I have some pictures here for you. Dress in the Roman women, um, self-preservation or presentation in society. A new book that just came out not so long ago, within the last couple of years, an exhaustive research of the way the women dressed in the first and second century. And when I read this, it was amazing. I want to show you why. Did their choice of dress communicate anything within their culture? And do these discoveries have anything to do with what we're talking about? Here's a picture. Next picture there is of Nero and Agrippina, his mother, or it might be one of uh, his first or second wife. Look at the hair style that she has. That's not something you just wake up in the morning with. The next picture, you can see it from the front. You can see it from the back. I was just over in Rome. Uh, not in Rome. I was at one of the Roman baths in England. And there were people dressed up there. And one of the ladies had her hair fixed like this. And I said, how long did it take you to fix that? She says, it takes about four hours to do that. And you can see how the hairstyles are. There's these pens. See the pens, the next picture? These were all the pens that they would put in their hair. And they had all kinds of those at the Roman Bath where people would leave them and they had them all in cases where I was over in London. Then they also had gold that they would put on the plaiting of the hair and the gold. And these were gold poppies. The next one, you can see this lady, all those nice curls. And then she has a pin on the top. And then she has uh, also, what does she have? That gold on the top. And then all these castanets that are hanging down, these pearls. Now, You've got to understand something. Cosmetics contributed to the woman's prestige and marked her social status. The word cosmetics is the same word for cosmos. And so when they would use the word cosmeta, it was saying, where do I fit in the order of society? Mm -hmm. The whole passage here is getting in order. 
And these people realized that the way they were going to show how they were in order was how they dressed. Now notice, look at all the different people they had that followed them around. A functor would anoint his mistress with perfumed oil. A cineflow or cinereus would curl her hair. A cosmeta was in charge of the makeup. I actually had a cosmeta talk to me tonight. And I don't know how it's working. It seems like it might be falling off. And an ancilla, like an ancillary person, would hold up the mirror. And ornatrix seemed to have been in charge of the beautification and adornment generally. Like today, there were two ladies that worked on me before I came out. One put this stuff on me, and the other lady came and said, no, 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 no. You will look pale. You will look like you're dead if you do that. And then, you know, she was like the head ornatrix. The other lady just kind of backed off, you know. Um, so I kind of got a little picture of this actually tonight. It was actually quite, quite scary. <laughs> now notice what it says next in our next, uh, next page. The long commitment of time and the skilled ornatrix, which, by the way, these are, these are brilliant uh, makeup artists here. Um, you would have no idea how many tons of spackle they used on my face. The commitment, the long commitment of that skilled ornatrix would have marked the woman as a lady of standing and was a sign of social rank and power. So the way someone dressed showed where they were. Now, I want you to get this point. Don't miss it, and I want to say it before I forget it. This was not just in Ephesus. This was across the Roman world, Greco-Roman world. And these studies were the pictures of people from all over the place. What about pearl earrings? Remember it says don't have the plaiting of the hair or the earrings and those different things. Pearl earrings called crotalia or castanets, a cluster of two or three pearls tinkling together, had become so popular that even the poor desired them. The justification offered by women was that a pearl is a woman's lictor or attendant in public. Women wore gold even on their shoes. And when they died, look at the next picture. It's a picture of a lady... And there beneath her, you see what? A picture of a mirror and a picture of all of her makeup cases. In other words, it was so important to showing where they were in the order of society that when they died on their tombstone, it put down a picture of their curling iron and everything else. The paraphernalia of beauty and beautiful rituals also marked status, and such items were depicted on tombstones. Now, lest you think, that this has nothing to do with all our culture, um, I, I can take you, I, mean, I, I can't take you personally, but I just happen to know that a lot of people that are of the female persuasion are tied up with this type of situation. In fact, Ellen White, I'll show you a quote later, she says this is a specific area and she says this particular passage should be applied universally because women struggle with it. In the same day, Tertullian, I won't read this whole thing, he basically said they spend a lot of money on, their, on their, their jewelry. The next one talked about Lolina Paulina's betrothal dinner. When she got married, she had a million bucks worth of stuff on, a million dollars worth of, of things on her that she was adorned with. Plenty the Elder, in the next quote, said this. I thought this was fascinating. And it's fascinating because of Adventist history. Adventist history, typically, no one, in America at least, uh, wore wedding rings, even gold, gold ones. But notice what happened back then. The use of the gold ring created a new division. A what? A new visit, division within Roman society. A tertius ordo, a third order, 
between the Senate and the plebs, and that effect was regrettable. If this was to become a symbol that will create a third equestrian order between the plebs and the stola. In other words, when they started wearing those rings, it disrupted the order. How many of you can see how this passage is totally related to the passages before? Paul is saying, pray to kings because you need, your, that you need society to be in order. He's saying, what? Pray to Christ because he can reorder your life because he paid for your sins. He's the only thing that can put things in order. Pray to Christ because he's the mediator. He's the only one that can bring things back in order. And by the way, men, you pray in a way that can bring order. And ladies, you dress in a way that can bring order. But now notice this next one. I think it's going to be fascinating to you. Too much adornment. This is Marcus Valerius, 40 to 104 A.D., same time period. Too much adornment might be linked with a refusal to bear children at all. Fashion and exclusive engagement with self was antithetical to childbearing. She who wants to appear beautiful harms her womb. What they associated was if someone was all looking about how pretty they were, they'd never have kids. And by the way, have you ever watched movie stars even today? Oh, I can't have kids because I'm going to mess myself up. And then later and later and later in life they get and finally they say, I've got to have kids. I've got to fulfill myself. How many of you have noticed this? That's not something that's just back then. Is Timothy relevant today? Marshall describes a woman wanting to see at her bosom two beautiful white large twins and then goes on to say, not boys, but pearls. Gelia loves her pearls more than her sons. Bound by her vanity and finery, the adorned woman subverted the ties of family and household by her infertility. Fashion therefore bred social disorder. The adorned woman showed an extreme culpable obsession with herself and with the self as social spectacle rather than displaying a devotion to her husband and family. I don't know. How many of you get the point here? Verse 9 is... it. it now, it should make 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 come alive. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in love and holiness and self-control. In other words, don't focus on the adornment. That's not what you were put in society for, to just show up for that. Do something that's actually worthwhile. Have children that can be godly children and can be your crown of rejoicing. Amen? Well, I won't read more of those. I'll leave them for you to read because I must hasten on. I will just say this about the next slides. Ellen White had this to say about this text. Ellen White on dress and adornment. It was, I was directed to the following scriptures, said the angel, they are to instruct God's people. Then Acts of the Apostles 5.23, the last one, you could read the others. The lesson applies to believers in how many ages? Every age. So what's Ellen White saying about chapter 2? It applies to every single age. Why? Why should you not dress that way? I won't read it to you, but I'll just put it there because I need to hasten on. Second Advent Review and Herald. She gives this story about a lady who came who had a ring and her, one of the believers said, take it off because uh, you're going to have influence with the outsiders. And she said, uh, uh, or keep it on so you can have influence. And she said, no. I'm going to follow the Bible. And then she talked to the lady and she said, you know, the best thing you can always do is follow the scripture. And then she quoted these scriptures and said, don't wear any rings whatsoever because that way you have evangelistic influence. Are you with me? So when we follow God's order, we have what? Evangelistic influence. So let's review briefly. Everyone was to pray for law and order. Number two, 
They were to pray to Christ who by his cross laid the foundation for everlasting order within their own lives. Number three, they were to pray to Christ who's the only mediator for he, he will right the wrongs and reorient the mind. He keeps the mind and the universe in order. And men were publicly to pray without wrath or doubting and to dis- demonstrate that they were not only bearing witness, uh, but that they were under orders, submitted to God. And men who would do this could preach and they could evangelize with power. Number five, women were to publicly dress in a way that showed that they were in submission to God. Dress in a way that's evangelistic, a way that shows God's order. And then, by the way, men would respect one another's roles also in family and public worship. That's the next verses. Read them with me. Let a woman learn in silence with submission. And I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, but to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Notice that men and women are mentioned there. They're working together to further the work of the church. Yes, one plays a leading role, and yet the same uh, focus, they both have the same focus. And by the way, when it says, let a woman learn in silence, remember all the word studies we just did? Silence didn't necessarily mean verbal silence. It meant what? Silence concerning the order of things. That's the point that was given. Now, man, I never thought that I would run out of time having two hours, but I only have 30 minutes, so I need to focus in here because you've got to see something very beautiful. Let's just read a couple passages here, and I want to just tell you what I'm going to tell you, then I'm going to show you. After it goes through this passage, how many of you can see the beauty of it now? Can you see the beauty of it? It's order, 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 because everything was out of disorder, 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 disorder. You get it. That's the point. And everything's being brought back into order, and the reason given for the order is why. Verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. In other words, the reason that everything comes back into order in this way is hearkening back to, and many of the statements we read hearken back to, because of what? Creation order. Are you with me? That's the point. Almost everything hearkened back to what? Creation order. The mediation statements went back to creation order. The prayer statements went back to creation order. All the things we read went back to creation order. It's very logical. It's very sequential. It's actually quite simple. Okay? Now, I know some are going to say, no, it's not simple. Well, it seems quite simple. Be faithful. Now, now, now uh, that's chapter 2. But then notice what it says. This is a faithful saying, verse, uh, chapter 3. I want to just show you something here. I won't read it all, but I'm just going to make a point. Chapter 3 gives 18 qualifications now for elders. And it's, no one argued at Tosk about whether or not it was talking about men. They were not that unintelligent to do that at Tosk. They all know it was males being mentioned. None of them argued about that at all. No debate whatsoever. The only argument was, does it apply? That's the only argument there was, right? And some say, no, it doesn't apply because it was just for their time. I hope we've totally debunked that tonight. It wasn't just for their time. Did we debunk that tonight, right? It wasn't for their time. Um, and others say, um, uh, I can't remember the other arguments. The point is, no one really argues about whether or not it's men being mentioned here to be elders. 
but they do argue about whether or not it applies. Now, concerning the men and the deacons, whether they be elders or deacons, it has a list of qualifications that about the same. There's not too much difference. And I want you to get this point, and I'm not going to go through each one of them. And this is the point. Uh, there's a huge list of qualifications, and they're rigorous for both the elder and the deacon. We have a misconception today that somehow deacons are lower in spirituality than elders. That's just totally not in the text. It's a high calling for both groups. And so the issue is not, okay, I'm going to be an elder, so I'm higher than a deacon. No. I'm going to do the best I can and have the character qualities God can alone give me to, to do the best what I'm doing, whether I'm an elder, a deacon, a deaconess, or nothing. Are you with me? But especially those who are called to these offices need to demonstrate these characteristics. Now, this is the thing that I found interesting that I want to show you. Okay? Um, as uh, the church is organized in an orderly way, you have three groups here. You have um, elders, verse 1 through 7, but notice the punchline. Remember we said we went all of the chapters from Titus 3 all the way back, and the punchline of every chapter was what? Be ordered so you can do evangelism. Now notice it's here as well. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Moreover, he must be, have a good testimony among those who are, what does it say? Outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. In other words, the reason that your church or your, your elders must be ordered is for evangelistic success. And by the way, they can't do their job unless they're working with a woman. They have to be the husband of one wife. Can you say amen to that? That's the picture. Now notice the next one, deacons. It has all the list of qualifications, but then verse 13. For those who have served well as deacons, obtain for them a good standing and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. Why is it that deacons have to live up to all of those qualifications? So they can have boldness for Christ, evangelistic success. Hallelujah. How many of you see it? That's the picture. What's the purpose of, uh, of deacons and uh, elders? It's to evangelism, evangelize. Now, others, some people debate about this, but I think there's a case for it after looking at it. They say verse 11 actually points to deaconesses. Likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate, faithful in all things. And some say that's a hint that there were deaconesses as well. And you might argue with me on that. But the point is, the point is, whether you are an elder or whether you're a deacon or whether you're a deaconess, you are to be poised by having a well-ordered life, not only in your home, but in your church for evangelism, for evangelistic purposes. How many of you are with me on this? Okay. And this will, uh, this will, this will cause success in a number of areas. Now, I want to come back to the last verses um, here in just a minute. But how many of you are with me so far? Now I want to give you two examples. We've done a lot of Bible study. How many think we've done a lot of Bible study tonight? Now I want to give you just a couple examples. Now I don't know which clock is right. On my clock I have maybe less time than the other. It's 37 minutes I think maybe. All right. I'm going to look at two examples tonight now in looking at this uh, particular subject. First of all in early Adventist history and then a contemporary view. In early Adventist history the judgment, uh, at, at Tosk they discussed this. And there were lots of people 
that were attempting to, uh, uh, at the Tosk meeting, that were attempting to say, early Adventist history, there were all kind of women that were ordained. That's what they were intimating. Do you remember this? They were intimating that. And then we had a meeting. By the way, I would stipulate that there were all kinds of uh, women that were involved in ministry in early Adventism. And uh, that was right. That was correct. And we need to get back to that. All right. Um, and we need a lot more men involved as well. Okay. We need everybody we can get. But they were making these big claims. And by the way, I live here in North America and all these periodicals were coming out and they were all saying, well, look, you know, they were all these women that were ordained and now these abusive male figures have done all this in the last so many years. And so the archivist went and looked at everything. Um, David Trim is his name. And he presented this paper. I want me to just read it to you. And then I'm going to give you an example from early Adventist history. This judgment, this was a quote from his paper and I encourage you to read it his paper. This judgment that, that, that no woman has been ordained with the sanction of the organized denomination runs contrary to the trend of much of the recent histography of women's ordination in Adventist history, which is written by proponents of ordaining women to gospel ministry. The sheer volume can seem impressive because they have all these things that come out supposedly that they were ordained back then. However, this body of scholarship does not actually prove its case due to a critical misunderstanding of what Adventists supported when it came to involvement of women in ministry. And then he went on to say there was absolutely no case he could find of any woman being ordained. And then he took the credentials of Ellen White that so many professors in this country misuse and actually are not telling the truth to students. And they, she said that was not that she was ordained. It was crossed out and he showed us all those things. You could have heard a pin drop on the carpet. Nobody went to the mics. Nobody went to the, I thought, man, the Holy Spirit is here. Finally, there's some reality that hit. Finally, some reality. No one came to the mic. Um, so anyway, I decided to look up the documents that he was criticizing. You know, What were they writing? And I found a document by a guy who used to be the archivist before David Trim. And he, this guy was a very uh, pro-women's ordination. He did all kinds of research. And, you know, I found his document. And I found some fascinating things that didn't prove what he said, but it did prove something, I think, that I want to bring up now in our last moments together in my presentations. And this is why I want to bring it up. So many times we talk about the problem, but what I want to try and do in the last couple minutes is talk about the solution. Now, it's not what you can't do, what should be done. Are you with me? Yes. Now, I want to do that by showing a, a story from his Adventist history. First of all, a quote by D.T. Bordeaux. We do not learn from the scriptures, this is 1862, that women are ever ordained as apostles, evangelists, or elders. Neither do we believe that they should teach. Um, they should teach as such. Yet they may act an important part in speaking the truth to others. So here he was, he says, look, you're not ordained in those capacities, but you should be proclaiming the truth to others. In other words, it wasn't let your women be silent, don't do anything. Get out. Now, how could he even say that if Ellen White is out preaching and teaching and so many are many others? And there were all kinds of other lady, ladies teaching and preaching, which there should be even today. But here's another one from J.H. Wagoneer, James White, and Uriah Smith. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Man is entitled to certain privileges which are not given to women, and he is subjected to some duties and burdens for which the women are exempt. We already learned that when we studied tonight. Isn't that true? A woman may pray 
prophesy, exhort, comfort the church, but she cannot occupy the position of a pastor or a ruling elder. This would be looked on as usurping authority over men, which is here in 1 Timothy 2.12 prohibited. This was the this was the teaching back then. But notice how balanced it is. They can't do this, but there's all kinds of other things they can do and they should do. Now, a lesson from history. In 1888, the church was involved in a great conflict over the righteousness by faith issue. And Ellen White was in the thick of it, right? And then afterwards, she started to support Jones and Wagoneer and go around and preach with them. And the brethren didn't like it. If there ever was a time when she should have asserted her uh, ability to be a leader in God's church, how many think that would have been the time? Mm -hmm. It is now time, high time to rise up and tell these folks to just leave me alone. But instead, you know what she did? She listened. Well, this is what she says. At times before leaving America, I thought that the Lord did not require me to go to a country so far away. At my age and when I was prostrated by overwork, but I followed the voice of the conference. By the way, that was all who? That was all men. As I have ever tried to do at times when I had no clear light myself. Okay? So here she goes, and she goes all the way down. And how old is she? Fairly old. Goes already to Australia. At the same time, just get this in perspective. Remember the first thing I started with tonight? That brother who said, look, the Lord can't come unless we ordain women. At that same time, when she was about to go, the Wesleyan Methodist Church began, was ordaining people. Uh, the Congregational Church was ordaining people. The Salvation Army was ordaining people. The Disciples of Christ Church was ordaining. The National Baptist Convention was. I mean, look, if there ever was a time where she should say, look, you know, I'll just go ahead, go out on my own, get ordained, have my own church. How many think that would be a great time to do it? Well, she didn't do it. She went down. Now, what happened down under? This is what happened. Now, this is what I want you to get, just in case you don't get it with all the verbiage here. What she did down under is a picture of what women and men working together should do today. Okay, so if you don't get anything out of all these quotes, this is the picture. Everybody got busy. Let me show you what I mean. 1894, the medical and ministerial perfect blend came together. You know, Kellogg was flaking out up in America, and the ministers were not working together. And down there, she got them to work together. It is presented that the Australasia is a field in which we will do a model work, a work that will show our friends and brethren in other lands how the evangelistic work and the medical work should be carried forward in perfect agreement and in perfect harmony, blending together. So she had all these people working together. So what happened? What else did she say? We want doctors and ministers working together. And by the way, some of them were lady physicians, and they were husband and wife teams, Dr. K. Rowe and his uh, and, and Elder Cairo worked together and others. I think he was a dentist, as I recall. 1894, preaching and house-to-house work. Too much dependence is placed upon preachers while the house-to-house work is neglected. Paul, the faithful apostle, says, I've kept nothing back that's profitable unto you, but I've showed you and taught you publicly and from house to house. Those who are laborers together with God will ever work in Christ's lines. Now, it's not just guys that go door-to-door. It's women that go door-to-door, too. Very obvious. My great-grandfather lived during the same time period. He had 30 Bible workers. He married one of them. That was my great-grandmother. He knew all about it. (laughs) 
Oh, my goodness. That was, that was a, a, a great story. I'll tell you some other time. 1897, a change. He called for a change in evangelism in local churches. Christian help work, look at it here, is the Lord's way of bringing the suffering and the loss to a knowledge of the gospel. It conforms more nearly to our Savior's method of work revealed in his early life. And this is A.G. Daniels. Now, by the way, think back in your mind. Titus, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, you know what they said again and again? Good works, good works, good works. This is Christian help work, Christian help work. And it was including men and women. 1898, a change in education. We'll see White bemoaned that the, there was an absence of special instruction to fit students to care for the sick in connection with Christian help work. Why? Because Ellen White was writing about that. She wanted all these people busy. By the way, down there, I hear tell she had a number of orphans that stayed at her own house. At one, she took care of over 40 orphans. She not only did the work of a prophet, she did the work of all these other things. She did all kinds of Christian help work. And education and training, it says there, for Bible work is necessary. So also is thorough education and training required that the worker may intelligently minister to the poor and sick. And this was not just for men. This was also for women. An entire education process. How many think that's great? How many think we need that again today? A change then in education. We'll see why continues. He desired that a faithful attention be given to the instruction of students in nursing and Christian help work as in Bible work. Largely in the nursing program, there were men, but there was a lot of women. And they were being trained to not only do nursing, but Christian help work. And when, within one year, the needed changes were made in Australia. Change in education continues. Elder and Mrs. Cairo, a minister and doctor team. The medical work in Australia is destined to do more in this field than it ever has done in America, said Cairo. We want nurses who are Bible workers and we want Bible workers and canvases, canvassers who are nurses. And this was both men and women. What was happening was there was nobody talking about gender issues whatsoever, even though there were 20-some denominations ordaining people all over America and all over Australia. Guess what? The Adventists didn't even pay attention because they were too busy working. That's what I want to get you the picture of. We're spending all this time on this issue when we should be all working. There's all kinds of sick. There's all kinds of poor. We got papers. We got symposiums. I'm through with it. Why don't we get to work? Men and women, we need to paint a bigger picture of what we should be doing. Amen. Are you with me? Amen. Now, it doesn't mean change God's order, and they didn't change God's order. And this is what I want you to see. Without changing God's order, they changed the planet for good. By the way, um, it was during this time that Ellen White had said that the loud cry had begun. In other words, our author at the beginning said, we have to do this to have the loud cry come. My friends, the light cry, loud cry had already started to fall. It had already started to fall. And it stopped when we went away from that. So we do need get, to get back to getting everybody to work and responding to the Holy Spirit. But we can't say that we have to ordain women to have the Holy Spirit. No, that's not the issue. We already had the Holy Spirit falling in loud cry power, and we needed to come back. Amen? Camp, comprehensive camp meetings. I'm so excited. I preached this message somewhere, and this guy was listening to me, and he got so excited. You know what he called me up? He called me up. He says, would you come to my camp meeting in 2016? Because I want to have everybody doing exactly what they did in Australia. I want all the women working. I want all the men working. I want to reach the entire city. And the entire camp meeting is going to be focused on medical missionary work. Can you say hallelujah? 
All right. Hang with me, guys. You're doing good. Holding a camp meeting, following it by tent meetings, accompanied by visiting Bible work. This is the next slide. Accompanied by visiting Bible work, selling of Bell Echo and religious and health books, and the Christian help work, and the establishment of a medical missionary uh, center. This is what she said should happen with camp meetings. What if all of us went to all the camp meetings and went out and did this kind of thing? Everybody using their gifts and talents. What would happen? Now, let me do summarize what happened down there in Australia because I believe it's an example of what should happen now because it's an example of a time when all the churches were trying everything but doing things God's way except for Ellen White. Ellen White and the brethren were doing things God's way and notice what happened. We'll summarize and then I'll show you and then we'll move to our second example. Here it is. Ellen White, number one, summary, modeled medical missionary work in a personal way like Jesus. How many think we need to do that? Number two, there was a change in the way evangelism was done in the local churches to be more like Jesus. You know what? When I look at what was done, it's all the words and methods that are mentioned in First and Second Timothy and Titus. It's all there. Number three, work of men and women was to be recognized and compensated like Jesus would have done. In our church, we've made a huge mistake in the past when we did not pay women for the work they did. They can do work just as effectively as men, and they should have been paid. And because they weren't paid, we have a problem. And we need to repent of that. <laughs> and we should be paying. Remember, remember in 1 Timothy chapter 6, or 2 Timothy chapter 6, I can't remember which one it was, give your money to support the work. People watching tonight, you say, wait a minute, I have no responsibility. Yes, you do. Send your money in and hire the women in your church or tell the conference, we want to pay a double tithe. We want to reverse this. We have some responsibility too. Amen? <laughs> there was a, look, my, my wife is worth much more in ministry than I am. You know, she cooks a meal and people want to get baptized. I preach a sermon and they say, you know, keep talking to me. And she preaches a sermon with our kids that no one else could preach. And she can also give a mean Bible study. In fact, she corrects me in my Bible studies, not publicly, thankfully, but she helps me out. When I'm preaching between two churches, when I went before, she would say, Don, let me just go over the message with you. I'm telling the truth here, okay? I'm thankful for my wife. I wouldn't be anything that I am today without my wife. And she should have been paid. I'm ready for retroactive pay. Would the, <laughs> the ushers come forward? <laughs> there was a change in educational curriculum to be more like Jesus, and there was a change in the way camp meetings and evangelistic meetings were done. And what were the results? Look at this slide and cover it. This is worth all the research that Archivist did, who was pro-ordination, had it wrong. But that's okay. I still like his research. No one was ever ordained. That's the beauty of his research. He just documented everything I needed to know. Uh, if I meet him someday, I'm just going to say, thank you so much for your research. What were the results of work by non-ordained women and non-ordained men along with ordained men in Australia? What happened? What were the results? Listen to this. Here's what the archivist says. By 1899, Seventh-day Adventists became a ministry because of the ministry known as Christian Help Work, were known throughout Australia and New Zealand and had more than doubled their membership between the beginning of that ministry in 1894 and 1900. 
I don't know. Something, something, do you know, you guys know how to say amen? You should be saying amen right now. Because there was an explosive paradigm changing ministry that included everybody. And now more recent example. Recent example. I'm uh, the leader of a, of a ministry called Health. Um, it's a health evangelism leadership training for him. We have men and women that work together. And once I went to, the, to this ASI meeting and I was preaching at the meeting and I said, you know, I'm a little bit irritated. Uh, you were at this meeting. <laughs> I'm a little bit irritated with the, the fact that we're here in a nice hotel. We got all this nice stuff. We're all sitting around eating nice meals and uh, the world's going to hell. And we're having a nice conference here. And look at all these nice booths. And they all, people here want to try and raise money from people. Guess what? I know all the people here that have money. So if you want to come and talk to me, I can point you right to them. But they probably won't give you any money. Remember when I said that? It was kind of inflammatory. And I said, what would happen if we decided to do, and then I talked about what I just showed you. What if we did that? And I showed them some video clips and different things. There was this one lady there that got so fired up. I'd never seen someone so fired up in my life. She came to me in the hall. She almost knocked me over like a football player. She said, Pastor McIntosh, you have to come to our meeting. She went into the meeting. She says, we're going to reach one of these cities. We're going to reach either Los Angeles or San Francisco or any city. We're going to reach them. We're going to do this. And I was like, Amen. That's great. So I'm there and there's all these people saying, you can't do it. She says, yes, we can do it. And then they started talking back and forth and there was emails and I can't take any credit for what happened after that. It was a vortex of activity. And there were all kinds of things that happened. I couldn't imagine it. All I know is this. That ASI chapter that year, it had about 150 people in attendance. The next year, there were 600 people in attendance. That year, there was an offering of $10,000. The next year, there was an offering of $260,000. That year, there was nobody reached in the community to speak of. The next year, there were 3,000 people reached called Building Bridges. I have some pictures there. We went to San Francisco. We rented the hall. It was called the Armory, but it really was a, it was a really a, uh, what was it, an adult entertainment filming center, a studio that was a bit different than this one. We didn't know that. When we got there, some of my students rocked in the wrong side, and they called me, I think we're in the wrong place. I said, you certainly are. Go to the other side. But then we went in there and that place of darkness turned into a place of light. It was turned into a hospital with services for everyone. People lined up and stayed all night. There were 3,000 people that were treated. During that time, there were liberals, there were conservatives, there were people that didn't know anything, there were people that thought they knew everything. They were all working together. They were so busy doing God's work that they didn't have time to argue because the people kept streaming in the front door. There's a picture of the dental center. There's the picture of the waiting room. All these dentists were ready. Miracles happened in that dental center. People that hadn't had teeth in parts of their mouth had new teeth. They were praising God. People that didn't have glasses got glasses. We had this idea. We said, look, you get your your prescription here and we'll deliver the glasses to you in a local church. There was an ophthalmologist who was a lady and her husband's the pastor of the church, a medical missionary team. The next week, people queued up at the church to get their glasses. They began Bible studies. Amen? All the ladies were busy. All the men were busy. No one was quibbling over who was ordained or not. They were all busy. Now, don't get me wrong. I think it's important to follow God's order. But all I want to say is there's a lot of work to do. 
And guess what? We did all this work without having any of this stuff solved. None of it was solved, supposedly solved, and yet there was work to do. Amen? Uh, look at all these pictures. I should tell you just a couple stories. I do have a couple minutes. One lady, I told, I told when we came in the evening meeting, I said to them, um, you know, we were in charge of the health booth. And this was where you did all the health counseling. So everybody would come with a sense of great gratitude after they'd been served. And then we would point them to the Adventist church or to some program or to some evangelistic meeting or some health meeting. And they were so filled with gratitude. I went and there were so many people there in the evenings working. There were about six or 700 people, a lot of them medical professionals and provi providers. And in the evening, we went to the meeting. And as I was there in the meeting, I said to them, let's do something. Let's do something uh, radical. What about tomorrow? We sing Amazing Grace right at 12 o'clock, right at 12 o'clock. See, we're all working away. 12 o'clock comes and there's a person sitting, a lady sitting right in front of me and I'm counseling her. And as she's sitting there, we all start singing Amazing Grace. She looks at me and she just starts crying. And she says, who are you people? And she started to sing in her voice. I could tell she hadn't sung in years. She began to cry. You know, there's something that happens when God's people come together in unity. There's something that happens when God's people are ordered according to His will and His way. There's something that happens when a preacher that's a man works with a physician, this case was a woman and her husband, and now the world's being turned upside down. Amen. Cities are lining up saying, can you help us? You know, just the other day, we got a phone call from San Antonio. And you know what they said in San Antonio? We said, look, we were able to offer $5.2 million worth of services in three days in San Francisco. The mayor of San Francisco and the newspaper man called up and said, this really blessed our city. Even though we have all kinds of people of different persuasions here, you came. And anytime the Seventh-day Adventists want to come back to San Francisco, you're welcome. And they called up the people there in San Antonio and just this last week an answer to prayer, definite answer to prayer because God wants to answer prayers when we're ordering things to his will and way. We received permission to use the entire Alamo Dome and the entire convention center as well. Amen. Can you say praise God to that? We now need 1,500 volunteers. And I don't care if you're a man or a woman or a, I don't care if you can see, or if you, I don't care who you are, we need people to help. BigCityBenevolence.com. How many of you think God wants people to work together for the kingdom of God? Well, you say, well, that's a big city. Well, no, let me give you another example. I live in a small town, less than 500 people in the city. Actually, it says, in, it says on the sign, population 56, <laughs> but there's actually more than that. We decided to draw a two-mile radius. We did a little, I put a card there. We did a card. We sent it out. What, what do you need help with? We help people around the world, but we haven't reached across the street. What could we help you with? And then we made a category of all the different homes. There's about 500 homes. We've only gotten to 200 of them, and we worked already for six months. And we just go there, and we try and find a need and meet it. And as we find that need and meet it, people start coming to church. They just come to church because we're doing Christian help work. Amen? Amen. Students are assigned and faculty, and they go there. It's a beautiful thing. We then held a dental clinic. 
we, had, we saw that one of the needs was a dental clinic, so people came. We had 86 people we treated in one day, and now nearly 10 of them are attending church in some fashion. And every single student and every single staff and faculty and all the church members work together. We turned the college into a medical missionary center. This is what I loved about it. They walked in and they met the registrar, a lovely young lady who greets them and talks to them. Then another young lady takes their vital signs or young man. And then a, a, a dentist triaged them. And then they, didn't, they couldn't go right in to see the dentist because it was backed up. So they went through an entire health expo. They went through that expo and guess what happened? They met all kinds of other people who were filled with the Holy Spirit. And then a bunch of people started singing to them. By the time they got to the dentist, they'd already met 57th day Adventists who were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then they got their teeth pulled. They didn't even need pain reliever. And they came out afterwards and I would meet them and they would say, what can I do to help? One man donated computers and his time to work on the computers. Another man said, I'll do anything. What can I do to help you? You see, when we start to work together, doing what God desires to be done at this time in earth's history, God is going to bless us. Amen. We don't need to be messing around with the order that God has ordained. We've done all this without messing around with it, and there's plenty more work to do. What do you say? <laughs> oh, man, I'm not quite caught up with my pictures. I'm telling you so many stories here. Uh, let me finish up now in our last few minutes with our last example. Our last example. We've got about 10 minutes left here. <clears throat> and remember, I wanted to take you back to the last section of chapter 3 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. Let me just review in your mind. What, what did we do? What have we done tonight? <laughs> We've done a lot. What did we do? We started out with a text that said what? Reject a divisive man after the first or second warning, knowing such a one is unstable. Right? Reject those. Why? Verse 11 said. Titus 3 verse 11. Why? because they're going to frustrate the work of evangelism. And then we went through and showed all the work of evangelism through the whole book. And the reason I did that was because I knew I was going to tell these stories, right? It was a sandwich, <laughs> right? And then we got back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and we discovered that evangelism had come to a standstill. Why? Because everything was disordered. Alexander and Hermeneus had disordered everything, right? And there was no peace of God. There was no ability to do any evangelism. And that flagship church had lost its first love, Ephesus had. Its candlestick was about to be removed. Paul says, let me send Timothy over. He teaches the same thing in every church. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. I know he'll do what's needed. And he went in there. And what did he do? He confronted. He named those that were causing the problem. He named them. But he named them to reclaim them. He named them because he said, I want them to learn not to blaspheme. He defined blasphemy. He said, don't mess around with the role distinctions. And then he said, look, here's what I'm talking about. And he went through all the Ten Commandments. Basically, what he was doing was he said, look, 
the solution to the pollution here that's going on in Ephesus, the solution is God's law written on the heart. That's the solution. Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Now, I want to show you something that I think is fascinating in our last few minutes. I'll just tell you about it. It's in your handout, though. The third way or option that was um, suggested at the Theology of Ordination Study Committee had something that made me discover what I'm about to show you, and that's this. They said, look, you know, group one says that you should follow the Bible. We believe like group one, and they believed a lot of things. But we think, um, we think they might be just a little bit too intense. We think this issue is important, but it's not really a moral imperative, which is really a Kantian term. It's not from the Bible, but it's basically saying it's not like the Ten Commandments. That got me thinking. So I began to study, and I said, wait a minute. Let me go through Timothy again. I'm going to read the entire book again. I'm going to read Titus again. I read it three times, and I said, let me see if I can find the commandments in this book. I want to see if what they're saying is true, and this is what I discovered. Now you're ready to hear this because you heard all the message. I discovered something, and that is that the qualifications for an elder or for the, uh, all the passages we read today are directly linked to the commandments. Let me explain to you. I would that everyone pray to Christ, especially men pray, and pray lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. What does that mean? Pray without being a lie. Pray in a way that does not break the ninth commandment. Adornment. Don't adorn yourself. Why? Adornment is really having a false god. Remember the story in Genesis chapter 35 verse 4 when they buried all their jewelry and they called it strange gods in their hands? In other words, the appeal to women was based on a commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Don't make any image. That's the second, first and second commandment. Be the husband of one wife. In 1 Timothy 3, 2 and 12, for elders and deacons, and in Titus 1, 6. This is an allusion to what commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery. Don't be involved in licentious and homosexuality is another one that was specifically uh, alluded to in chapter 1. How many of you can see something here? Don't covet. If you're going to be an elder, it says don't covet. Don't be covetous. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3. This is one of the characteristics. What commandment is that? It's the 10th commandment. Rule your family well. Honor thy father and thy mother that thy days may be long. This is a quality for elders and deacons. 1 Timothy 3, 4, 5, 3, verse 4 and 5, and verse 12. And that's commandment number 5. Friends, what I discovered was something that just blew me away when I discovered it. You know what it was? That the issue of reordering society concerning God's way is directly related to the Ten Commandments. It is an expression of the Ten Commandments. If we follow God's will in His way, we will be applying the Ten Commandments in our very lives, in our very churches. If we decide not to follow God's will and God's way, we won't be keeping the commandments in practicality. And so the third position is actually wrong. 
it is a moral imperative. It is tied directly to the Ten Commandments. And Paul even makes that point. Look at it in 1 Corinthians 14, 33. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of God. And how is it that you have peace? Great peace have they which love thy law, nothing shall offend them. And if those five characteristics are directly related to this ordination issue, then the prescription for peace is sticking with God's order as described in First and Second Timothy. Can you say amen to that? Why are we still here? Ellen White said it this way. For 40 years did unbelief, murmuring, and rebellion shut out ancient Israel from the land of Canaan. The same sins have delayed the entrance of modern Israel into heavenly Canaan. In neither case were the promises of God at fault. It was the unbelief, the worldliness, the unconsecration, the strife among God's professed people that kept us in this world of sin and sorrow so many more years. Let's stop the strife. Let's just let God write his law on our hearts and minds and let us just live it practically. Are you with me? First Corinthians 14, 34 and 37. Use the same language as 1 Timothy chapter 2 where it talks about Men and being teaching and, and women being silent uses those same words. And remember, silence again is not talking. It's acknowledging God's order. Are you with me? But this is what it says in 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 37. Concerning the same issue, Paul says this, I write these things unto you and they are the commandments of the Lord. Any Seventh-day Adventist should understand the importance of that text. Bell Echo, August 26, 1895. The word was not given at the option of men, and the use to be made of it is not left to their option. Men may not dissect or pronounce upon, rest or misinterpret, take from or cast aside any portion of that word according to their own judgment. How many of you think we need to just follow God's word? 1 Corinthians 14, 40. Let therefore all things be done decently and in order. Now, I didn't read one last text. I want to read it to you now. You see, God's order throughout society is based on God's word and is based on his commandments. Our problem is not that we don't understand it. Sometimes we have a problem believing it, that it will really work. Can following God's will in his way in an egalitarian society work? Well, here's the text I think that should prove it for you as we close. Last text, chapter 6, chapter 3 and verse 16. Remember the church was to be the pillar and ground of truth, Right? But then look at this. After saying that, look at verse 16. I'll just read 14 through 16. These things I write to you, and I hope to come to you shortly. But if I'm delayed, I write that you should know how you ought to conduct yourself into the house of God. There's that order again. You see it? Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of truth. And then notice this. And without controversy, 
Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, and received up to glory. Now, why do I close with that? What's God trying to do? He's saying this. He's saying this. Look, everything was out of order in Ephesus. But through prayer, through calling on the person who died on the cross for you and me, through public prayer by men, through ordering of the life by proper dress with women, through proper teaching and preaching and family work and church work, you can have evangelistic success in this world. If you organize the church, the elders, the deacons, the deaconesses, according to my way, you can reach the outsider. You can reach the outsider. You will have success. Trust me. And then he ends with the punchline. If you don't really, if you really want me to prove it to you, just remember what I did. Remember the mystery of godliness. I was God. And I reordered everything to bring you back into order. There's the incarnation. I was God, and I came down through the agency of my spirit and my angels, and I reordered everything. They're ministers to those that are heirs of salvation. I was God, and I was successful. Notice what I did. I reached the Gentiles. I preached to the Gentiles, and they believed in the world, and they were received up to glory. Have confidence in me. Have confidence in me. Believe in me. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, we want you to reorder our disordered lives. We need you more than ever in our church, in our homes, and in our own lives. Reorder us. Whatever we eat, whatever we drink, whatever we do, may it all be to the glory of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.